Welcome to the Cyber Guy Podcast, your source for engaging cyber education, cyber discussions, and a look at current cyber news and trends with retired FBI Special Agent Darren Mott. Happy President's Weekend, everyone. I'm Darren Mott, the host of the Cyber Guy Podcast. I want to thank you for taking the time to download and listen to the podcast. This is my second episode. You know, I'm calling the Cyber Guy version 2.0, which is essentially me kind of reformatting the podcast. In this episode, I have a special guest, uh, Scott Augenbaum. He's been on the show many times, but, so he's back by popular demand. And he's actually going to talk about a successful case where he was able to get the victim's money back. So I don't want to spoil that, but we'll have a discussion with him on how that case worked out. And it kind of really, at the end of the day, bottom line up front, the more FBI folks you know, the the better you are in knowing who your FBI point of contacts are, the more likely it is you can have some success in some of these cyber cases. So we'll talk to Scott in a little bit, but let me get to this week's education and threat of the week. So from an educational standpoint, I want to talk about what a hybrid warfare is. And this is going to be a very Russian-centric episode. A lot of the stuff we talk about is going to be focused around cyber actors in Russia and, and just Russia in general. But as we head into this weekend, there is all sorts of news regarding Russia looking to invade Crimea. Uh, prior to me coming on the podcast, if I was smart, I would have checked to see if um, Russia has actually invaded. There was news before I went out earlier today that they were going to, but looking at some news sources, not sure if they're in the air yet, but it may happen. It may not. Who's to say? But essentially... Um, what we're going to see with the Russian-Ukrainian conflict is what is called hybrid warfare. It is not anything new. It has occurred in the past. Russia has, has already proven that they can do this hybrid warfare fairly successfully. And basically what that means, in addition to being a kinetic warfare where missiles are dropped and guns are shot and tanks roll in and all that kind of stuff, there is also a cyber aspect to warfare where hackers either directly associated with a nation state or affiliated tangentially, um, do hacking attempts against an adversary's critical infrastructure, their government resources, stuff like that. This has already occurred in the current Russian-Ukraine conflict. Last week, there were uh, hacking efforts that took down Russian, uh, not Russian, I'm sorry, Ukrainian government websites, Ukrainian banks, and things of that nature, and we will see more of that going forward. Russia has proven this is an effective method. They did it in 2014 when they invaded Crimea. They did the same thing and attacked um, Ukrainian um, sites and, and, and governmental sites and things like that. They did it in 2008 when they invaded South Ossetia in the country of Georgia, and they launched attacks against critical infrastructure and government entities there. Now, from 2008 to now, they've gotten obviously much more talented at the capabilities uh, or the more effective at the capabilities that they have. So you're going to see a lot of this activity going on at the same time as any kind of kinetic activity. Actually, it'll probably happen beforehand. And other countries learn from this. China has certainly learned from it. Um, I would almost, I would argue, and it's been argued on this podcast before, that we're already in a part, the part of the hybrid warfare where cyber attacks are going on. China, Iran, Russia, South, North Korea are certainly showing and continue to show uh, cyber network or computer network exploitations and things like that, where they go in and steal data. There was a joint FBI 
um, DHS report that came out this week that indicated that Russian uh, actors were targeting clear defense contractors, those companies in the United States that create the all the stuff that the Department of Defense and other other government agencies need to operate. So we will certainly see more of that. Um, we're not probably going to see a kinetic action here in the United States, but we will see this with Russia and Ukraine. And chances are, depending on how this occurs, and I'm not taking a political stance on this, but if Russia proves to be somewhat successful with the Ukraine, that's going to do nothing more than embolden China to look and see what they can do with Taiwan and taking Taiwan back um, as part of China. So they will obviously launch hybrid warfare activities against Taiwan. I would be willing to bet right now that 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 particular the cyber aspect of the hybrid warfare is going on in Taiwan as we speak at this particular moment. So does it mean we don't do that? No, certainly we certainly do those kind of things. We have probably our our agencies are just as good, if not better at doing that. Um, and in the event of any conflict, you will see cyber activity and you'll see you will hear a lot about hybrid warfare. Uh, and so that's kind of just a quick look at what hybrid warfare means. It is the use of computer trade or cyber tradecraft um, to do computer cy- computer network exploitations, offensive cyber actions to disrupt the usual activity of your adversary, be it through targeting critical national infrastructure, government websites, things like that. Which brings us to the threat of the week, which is obviously Russia. We are talking Russia big way this week. So in addition to, um, you know, obviously the issues with the Ukraine and what I mentioned with the FBI and the DHS report, Russia is targeting, has targeted, continues to target U.S. entities for geopolitical, financial, and a whole host of different reasons to, because they can, because there is an innate deniability within cyber criminal and cyber counter or espionage type activity, um, counterintelligence activity, if you will. Uh, and Russia is very good at it. I always would tell a story when I did presentations about if you have a network, who do you know who hacked you? So let's pretend that you're in a room, right? Whatever room you're in right now, let's say that is your computer network. If you come in tomorrow and everything is missing from the room, China was there. China sucks up as much information as they can before they are found out uh, and they take it and they figure out what they have afterwards. If you show up tomorrow and there's like a pen or a piece of paper or a tack on the wall that's missing, Russia was there. Russia is much more um, targeted in what they're looking for. They, they find what they look for and they try to make sure no one knows they were there. Now they're not perfect, certainly, because obviously um, this ident- this activity has been identified in the past. So, they, you know, it's not always perfect, but they try to be a little quieter than China. And then if it's Iran, then you come in the next room and the, the room's on fire. So that's kind of the analogy I give for that. But we need to worry about Russia from, from several different aspects. In addition to the national security risks that were I talked about earlier with hybrid warfare, most of the, or a large, let me rephrase it, a large majority of the cyber criminal activity originates out of Russia. Why? Because the Russian government allows it. And they really, as long as bad guys in Russia don't hack Russia, they're not going to really get in trouble with law enforcement in Russia. When I was at FBI headquarters in 2007 to 2009, I worked directly with the Russians in trying to get help with FBI cases that we knew the bad guys were in Russia. And other than having quite a few meetings where we traveled over to St. Petersburg, Russia to have conversations. Um, Really, all we got out of it were some cool tours of the Hermitage, which is a huge museum in St. Petersburg, 
I got to go in a Russian helicopter once, but as far as getting any success and any kind of, um, anybody arrested, it was, we really didn't have a whole lot of successes. We did have one guy arrested, um, who was a low level player on a case we had, and there was some restitution, like $5,000 to American express and maybe 5,000 to Apple. So they kind of did that as a show of good faith that they were trying when in reality we knew they, they really weren't. So Russia is going to continue to be a threat. Um, it is not as mentioned in 2012, you know, your father's threat. It is, a, it is a threat. China and Russia are really two biggest threats. Um, but for this week, what we're looking at is Russia uh, because of what's happening in Ukraine, because of the DHS FBI advisory that, that Russia is targeting clear defense contractors uh, and basically your own personal financial information. If Russian hackers can get to it, they're going to steal it, as we will find out here with our discussion with Scott Ogenbaum. Well, back to the Cyber Guy podcast by popular demand, famed author, speaker, motivational speaker, and Dr. Phil alumnus, Scott Ogavov. Scott, welcome back to the podcast. Back by popular demand. I needed somebody to talk to. I have a lot of things I need to get off my chest. And thank you, Darren, for allowing me to talk to you and your audience again. All right. I appreciate it, Scott. So one thing we, want, we, we, we talked beforehand, obviously, and what we wanted to talk about for today was an experience you had 12 years ago with a victim and how having a liaison relationship with a local FBI office really helped out this victim. So why don't you kind of predicate the case for us and we'll, we'll go from there. This is one of my, I hate to say it, few success stories. I hate to say that the planets were aligned, things were in the right place at the right time, the right relationships were in place. And Darren, I wish they were all this easy. But let's go back in time. Let's go back to probably 2010 or so. I have a great working relationship with one of the local large law firms here because back in 2010, the FBI, we were still handling your favorite topic, intellectual property rights. Mm, Remember those days? Certainly. Absolutely. The only thing I'm famous for. uh, Yes, you are. Uh, So I had this relationship with this IPR attorney in town and he calls me up at four o'clock in the afternoon on a Friday. And what usually happens at four o'clock in the afternoon on a Friday when you're an FBI agent, you get a telephone call. Uh, well, beyond cursing because you got somebody calling you on a, right before your weekend starts? Well, it's also usually, it's never a good situation. You Cur- never oh, get yes, an correct. Easy call. Yes, yes, I got you. Yep. You, ne- you, you, you never get an easy call at mm-hmm. four o'clock in the afternoon. So he picks up the phone, he calls me uh, on my cell and he tells me that he has a client that is a nonprofit organization that just realized that somebody logged into their online account portal and sent a wire transfer over to Latvia. Now, Darren, what, what advice would you give to someone, you know, when when a situation like that happens uh first thing would be call your bank see if they can stop the wire and if that doesn't work well you just have to say report it to ic3.gov as an option uh, but if you have a relationship with a league ad in a foreign place you can go to that space 
You're missing it all, bro. Of course, I always do. I, I never get your question right. You always right. do. You pray. <laughs> you pray. Right, yes. You, you, I was going to say know, that, that too. That, I was going to say, you didn't let me finish. Pray was the last one. All right, sure. But you pray, honestly. And I'm like, holy crap. Good luck trying to get in touch with your bank at four o'clock in the afternoon on a Friday. Right. I always joke. I go, that's why they call it banker's hours. Okay. Now let's go back in time. 2010 was a little bit of a different scenario. When you were able to log into your bank, you were able to almost do anything in the world without really much safeguards. Right. That is not the case anymore. That's why the business email compromise is so uh, important and so it plays, not important, but it's such part of the ecosystem of cyber criminals. Because today, I don't think, can you do a international wire transfer with just a username and password at your, I don't think so. No. So at that point, he calls, can't get in touch with the bank. He calls me up. He tells me that the victim is a nonprofit organization that did missionary work around the world. And the bad guy was able to get in, looked at their entire operating account, move it from savings to checking, from checking, did the international wire and just pushed one button. Now, they had a local bank here in town, and I was finally able to get in touch with the banker and everything like that, you know, really annoyed Friday afternoon. Nobody, hey, everybody kept going like this. Oh, we'll deal with it on Monday because the bank in Nashville did not have a corresponding banking relationship with Latvia. At the time, it had to go to one of the clearing banks. And I don't know, it was probably, let's just say maybe it was in New York, maybe it was one of the big banks in New York. Now, good luck trying to contact the wire room, get all of these things stopped. I'm sitting there and I'm having a little bit of heated conversations with the bank at this time in Nashville, because the bank in Nashville says, don't worry, we will come in early on Friday morning. Monday morning. No, Monday morning. This is on a weekend. This is kind of good because, you know, the banks over in Latvia are closed. You can't get the money out of the bank. So I'm like, okay. And they tell me, this is good. We'll handle it Monday morning at 8 a.m. Central Time. Now, you know, I always like to put you on the spot and ask you questions that you're completely unprepared for. Yes. But what's the problem at 8 o'clock in the morning Central Standard Time? It's like four in the afternoon in Latvia or whatever the whatever the time difference is. I got that. I think I got that one right. Oh, my God. This is like the first time you read my mind. We're in sync, buddy. Yes. Mind. Yeah, it's four o'clock in the afternoon. And I'm like, this is not going to be good. Good luck trying to get in touch with someone at a wire room. You get 800 numbers. This is 2010. These things don't really these things don't really happen. And good luck trying to contact someone in one of the big field offices at four o'clock on a Friday afternoon to say, hey, does somebody have a relationship with someone at the bank? So I remember I go, I have to go over and open up like, I think at the time we had a world map in the office. Uh, I don't think in 2010, my little phone had access to the internet. So I look over and I go, where is Latvia? And I think if I remember, it was go to Poland and take a 
take a left or something like that. Take a right. I or a or right. Or north. Or yeah, right. something it's like on that. on the Russian border. So, actually, yeah. so I go over there and I realize that, and, and I get the countries confused because this is 12 years ago. I go over and I see that we do not have a relationship with, because the FBI, we have how many legal attaches around the world? 70 plus. And explain to the listeners, what is a legal attache? So it is a FBI agent assigned to a, an embassy in a foreign country to do law enforcement liaison with law enforcement in that country or, na- or national security apparatus entities, things like that. And depending on the country, some have large, like the, the London office is huge with multiple agents. The Russian office in Moscow has three, used to have three agents. I'm not sure how many, they probably none today, but I don't know how many, but Latvia would have had one FBI agent covering Latva, Latvia, Lithuania, and Estonia at the time, I believe. Probably same, same today, but yes. Yeah, but today, how many, I don't even know the answer to this, but how many, we, we have quite a few cyber. Yeah, but still, it's not a huge number. But at the time, in 2009, there were none. Zero. Yes, exactly. <laughs> so I contact the office, and, I, and I'm getting the country backwards, or the names backwards, because I think, you know, I contact, I find out that wherever the money wasn't, wherever the money was sent to, didn't have an agent in that. So explain to the fact how one FBI agent can cover three countries. Explain <laughs> that whole process. That's magic. Very dust. Yeah, but it's building up relationships yeah. oh, yeah, with certainly. people. Yes. So so I, I go over, and that was one of the good things. You were able to see who was the guy who was assigned to. Now, all of a sudden, it's four, you know, it's five o'clock in the afternoon. And what's my knee-jerk reaction to pick up the phone and call him? Sure. But what's the problem at five o'clock in the afternoon central time? It's the middle of the night where he is. He's sleeping. Yeah. And this isn't a terrorism case. So I make it a point to call him. I wake up in the middle of the night. I pick up the phone. I call him. You know, and the FBI, the great thing about it is we were always one degree away of separation of going, hey, you know, my buddy Darren Mott. Oh, yeah. Something like that. Even if I didn't know the guy, you know, that superstar IPR agent back in the day. So we we talked to each other and I explained to him the deal and he goes and I explained to him the situation and I'm waiting for him to say oh there's really nothing we could do but all of a sudden he tells me that they had a money laundering unit in the country the Latvian money laundering unit I didn't even know what that was or anything but these three detectives came back to the National Academy for a certain kind of training a couple of months earlier. And uh, we had really good relationships. Can you talk a little bit about the FBI's mechanism of bringing these foreign law enforcement officers back to the Academy for classes? What did that do? It it created a relationship that was hard to break because they came over. We're at the FBI Academy in Quantico co for a certain number of weeks, learned all sorts of stuff that the FBI teaches its agents and other law enforcement. And so they became part of the FBI law enforcement community family. Yeah. And as part of that family, what he told me is, hey, we took these guys up to New York City. They loved it. They had a little bit too much to drink. They rode around. They were they really built a great relationship with these guys. So he goes, look, 
I'm going to call these guys right now. I know them personally and everything. He calls the lot. He calls the counterparts over there and they and they get back to me and they go, hey, listen, there's great news. The money is going to a bank located two blocks away from where these guys work. So the three of them are going to go down in the morning and they are going to wait there and they're going to try to apprehend this guy who's going to go there and pick up the money. Now, let's look at the chain of events that are happening. The attorney calls me. He knows me. I contact the guy over here. The guy happens to know three law enforcement officers in another country. Now, are the planets aligned? How often does this happen, Darren? Not, not very often. Yeah. That's why you li- that is why you live the charm life. Yes. Give, give me an example. Tell me something like what happened. How, does the, how do they typically play out? You know, they call the field sure, office. You call the field it office. voicemail. Sure. And, and that, so yeah, you may be calling on Monday and then you find out it's in another country. In order to get law enforcement in another country to assist you, you have to get the Department of Justice to create a mutual or an, what's called an MLAT, a mutual legal assistance treaty document or a What's the other one? Letter of rogatory, which basically says, can you please help us in this case? And it takes months and months for the Department of Justice, the State Department to get all that stuff in place, to send it to the embassy, to get it to the league at, to go find the local law enforcement and say, hey, can you find this money that was transferred? It's never it's it's never successful in that respect because of how long it takes to happen. And even with some places, I was up in Toronto handling cyber for 30 days. Let me tell you. I couldn't get it. There was a whole mechanism that was in place and procedures and steps. But here we go. Now we have some great relationships. These guys show up at the bank uh, right before the bank's about to open. They go into the bank. They talk to the bank teller. They stake out the thing and nobody ever shows up because there's instructions to once that money gets this account into the bank, it's going to be sent deep inside the Russian Federation. And at that point in time, they were able to stop that from happening. And they were able to automatically wire transfer the money back to the victim account at eight o'clock in the morning, Latvian time, which was about midnight hour time. So by the time I got into the office that morning, this whole entire situation was resolved. But there were so many life lessons here that are so important that we talk about. Because like you said, this is the charm life. This was the charm life for the victim. The victim had no idea. Really, they were like, Oh, okay. Well, hey, this is pretty easy. You know, we just call the FBI and the FBI makes a phone call and the money goes back to the account that same day. Uh -uh. Mm -mm. Uh-uh. It does not work that far. They provided me the information, which really weren't supposed to. uh, And they explained to me that, hey, the money went back and deep inside the Russian Federation. So let's play this out. Let's talk about this. And then I want to talk about how this happened. Let's explain. Let's go through this. Let's just say at that point in time, the battery of my cell phone died and they could not get back to me. So let's just go over. Let's say this happened. And now they reported eight o'clock in the morning. Money is already gone. 
$400,000. Now I have to open up an investigation. Mm-hmm. Then I have to go to the United States Attorney's Office and subpoena the victim bank because the victim bank's not just going to give me the information. I'm going to get a subpoena. Let's say I get it later that day, which is really, really hard. And let's even say the bank gives me that information. They're going to tell me the money went to the corresponding bank. Okay. Now let's just say hypothetically, I have to send a subpoena to Bank of America, Bank of New York, or any of these banks. How long is it going to take me to get that information back, Darren? from a grand jury subpoena. If you're lucky, two to three weeks. If you're, if okay. it's more likely, it's, you know, a month maybe, maybe. All right, let's even go back and let's just say we have contacts at those banks and at 12 o'clock in the afternoon, I have the information for the bank overseas. Can I get a grand jury subpoena to go to a bank overseas? No. I have to get a mutual legal assistance treaty, which is almost the same amount of proof as a search warrant. So now I got to go write this up. I got to go to the U.S. attorney's office here. I got to get in front. I, I don't even know. Do we get in front of I, it's been a long time. I don't no. even know if you get in front of a magistrate or a judge. No. You got to find someone at the Department of Justice who handles mutual legal assistance treaties. Right. And then they prioritize it. Is it terrorism? Is it life and death? How long does the average mutual legal assistance treaty take to get processed? Six months. Back then, maybe six months. Right now, uh, who knows? Who knows? Maybe better. Now, I go over there and I serve them. And now it has to go through the process. Because just because now the ALAT gets the mutual legal assistance treaty, he just can't walk over to the bank. Now it has to go through the court system over there. And that kind of could take another six months. Maybe you can do it in a week. But now it's prioritized because now you have one law enforcement officer covering three countries. And let's say we don't have the right people in place. I've dealt with a lot of Granger, a lot of MLATs in my day where we didn't have people in place to be able to handle those things. And things were backed up. There were leads six months, nine months, a year old. I hate to tell you, I hate, this is just the whole education process. Mm-hmm. Of it. So now I get the information from them. It's probably, let's just say at the quickest world record, I get the information back from the overseas bank in six months. And what information does the bank tell me, Darren? It was transferred to Russia. It was transferred <laughs> to Russia. That's right. So let's just say hypothetically, and it's not a good time to be making Russian jokes with everything going on in <laughs> right. the Ukraine. That's right. Let's just say that Russia is almost the same as Canada. How long is it going to take me again to go over and serve a mutual legal assistance treaty? Uh, if we assume it's like Canada, then maybe three months, three months, four months, oh. maybe five. Who knows? Okay. 
All right. Well, let's be and honest. Hold on. Let's, let's not. It's not Canada. You're never going to get any information from Russia, so it doesn't matter. I was in Canada, and I use that as an example because it took a while to get things done in Canada just because of the bureaucracy. And Canada is our friend. Sure, sure. But at this point, so this is what I picture. Now we get the rush, the records back from Russia, and now the money went to five separate mule accounts controlled by hypothetically Russian organized crime because this is 2010. Uh-huh. I don't really believe and I don't remember if the Nigerians had their money laundering operation rolling back then because I, because I'm going to go back. This was malware. So this isn't the Nigerians. This is probably Eastern European organized crime. Now, let's just say that money is broken down into $100,000 wire transfers at four separate banks. One is over in Korea. One is over in Singapore. One is over in Bangladesh. And one is somewhere else. Now we have to do the whole same thing. Now, as the case agent, you've got 40 or 50 other things going on. At this point, the chances of the victim getting their money back, what's the chances, Darren? Zero. 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 And that's why when we go back to it and it was a religious institution, I said pray. Mm -hmm. Because you know what? I'm amazed that this happened the way it was. So let's just go through it. So any other further clarification? Now we saw how from I get the phone call. Now we stop it. I just wanted to take everyone here on a journey. So now it's nine o'clock in the morning on Monday. Victim already got their money back. They're really not too excited to meet with us because they have no idea what just happened. Right. So at the time, Victor and I show up. We go over and we talk to the person who's at the the nonprofit. And what is what was the nonprofit? Three computers, a modem attached to a bank account. That's it. So we go over and Victor does his quick glance at the computer. He does his forensic magic and he determines that there is a piece of malware that is on the computer. And it was tied to back then. He asks the girl a question and says, do you remember recently getting a Facebook message from a friend or anything that asked you to look at pictures and you clicked on the link and nothing happened? And that's when her throat really started to tighten. And she was like, oh, my God. Uh, last Friday. Now, remember, this is almost in real time. She goes, I do remember that my uncle sent me a message and I clicked on it and nothing happened. And that's when she realized that by clicking on that one link in an email, the bad guy was able to install a key logger on the machine. We were able to look at the traffic that beaconed out. And where do you think the traffic was going to? Russia. Uh, very good. You're reading my mind again. So it didn't even matter because back then it was going to a bulletproof host, which was under the umbrella. Do you remember the three initials of the world's most famous bulletproof yes, host? Russian company? Business Network. That's right. <laughs> and there we go. And so let's kind of dissect this a little bit over here. You know, let's look at it. 
clicked on a link and a message, had a piece of malware installed on the computer. At the time, the antivirus did not pick it up, stole username and password. Bad guy was able to log in remotely. Now, the bad guy in Russia was not able to log into the bank here locally. And what we ended up determining was the bad guy located a compromised computer here in Nashville. And from there, they got into it. Mm. And there were a couple of things that played in when when they were able to log into the computer uh, to the bank. The bank picked up and said, hey, we don't we've never seen this IP address before. So the bank issued the unchallenged questions. And what are some of the typical unchallenged questions that people use? What's the city you were born in? What's the name of your first dog? What's the name of your first, what type of car did you, what was your first car? All that stuff. Yeah. And uh, very easy to guess. And the bad guys were able to get onto her social media account, figure it out, get in, log in, and boom, almost caused their damage. Mm -hmm. And, you know, by the grace of God, we were able to get that money back. And I always joke and say, look, I was just at the right place at the right time. But, you know, what's your biggest takeaway? Well, I think the bigger, the bigger takeaway is relationships. It's better to know your FBI point of contact before you have an incident as opposed to after. Let's say it had been someone who never met any FBI agent in Nashville ever and had this problem at a 4 o'clock on a Friday. They would have called the Memphis field office because when they look at Nashville, it's going to direct them to the Memphis field office. They call the Memphis field office phone number that directs it to the Nashville RA, maybe if you're lucky. And then it goes to, might go to some that, you know, might go to the, um, the duty agent. So it doesn't go to a cyber guy. It goes whoever is the duty agent for the day. Who might I don't be, even think they have duty agents anymore, Darren. I think yes, everything they do. gets Absolutely, they do. They did two years ago. They did. Absolutely, I was a duty when I had to step down for 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 three months. I had to be duty agent a couple of times. So I used to have duty agent. So duty agent might have been talking to somebody else. Goes to their voicemail. He comes back and he says, "I'll call him on Monday." Call and then then the, then the issue would have occurred, like you already said. They call him on Monday, but the money's already gone. So having that relationship with you is what say, well, the relationship with the lawyer, right? So it wasn't, you didn't have a relationship with- He knew who to Right, he knew who to call, who yes. Call. Yes, correct. So so again, and, and it's it's a couple steps, you know, it's Kevin Bacon, six steps of separation, but that's still important to know at least who to call. So, uh, you know, like I, I've said many times, if, if you're a company, know who your local points of FBI contact are, and they're not gonna, they'll come talk to you, they'll give you all sorts of information, they'll- be happy for you to call them to have this. And then you had, and then the relationship of the league at with the foreign law enforcement was awesome. So it's great. Again, but, but, you know, to this day, and then, you know, as an FBI agent, there was always the danger. I mean, my phone was ringing all the time. I mean, I was getting phone calls on soccer fields on a Saturday from people and you had to take the calls. Yep. I mean, you didn't have to, but, you know, a lot of people would just let it roll into the voicemail. But it was like there was someone there who needed our help. Yep. And, and, we, we and at the end of the day, that's at, right. And at the end of the day, we want to help. We want to get your money back. It's just it's, it's hard with cyber. But, you know, a lot of lessons learned in this. And it's nice. It's nice for a change to hear a good cyber success story because there are. They're becoming a little more prominent in the sense, but I mean, some of it's even, it's, a, it's, um, 
what's the word I'm looking for? It's not really a it's not really a win when they indict five Russians who are still in Russia. It's perfunctory, but you know, at least in this case, again, no one went to jail. But the difference is, as you always say, in in a lot of your speeches, I got a couple of truths. No one's going to get their money back. The FBI is not going to put anybody in jail, and I forget your other ones. But the in this case, no one went to jail, but they got the money back. So that was still a win. Well, let's also talk about this. It could have been prevented. Sure, you know, sure. and the advice we were giving people then. And now the banks have stepped up. The banks have made it a little bit more challenging to be able to pull this out. But that's why, you know, I look back at some of the advice that I was giving in 2010. And it's really, I don't think it's as practical as it used to be. I used to tell everyone back then, have a separate laptop for banking and finance. I'm going to be honest, I don't do that anymore. I just make sure that my account is protected with two-factor authentication. Because back then, you know, where are we making wire transfers today? We're doing everything on our phone. We're doing everything through the apps and that yep. stuff. Yep. And that's where it's becoming a little bit more dangerous. But let me get your opinion. I don't know. Do, do we still need? I mean, I don't tell people anymore, go buy a separate laptop mm -hmm. for banking account. I don't know. Should I? I no, I, I guess it. I think it depends on the on the person and honestly the age the age range. If you're under fifty, it's not worth it because you have you like you said you're doing everything on the phone. If you got parents over seventy, it's not worth it because they probably have trouble enough just doing it with one computer. But what I think what you need to do if you have elderly parents is you need to work with them to be a proxy user on all their accounts so you can kind of monitor. I know my brother does this with my mother, um, watches all of her bank accounts and, and takes and gets her phone calls and stuff. And he gets calls all the time for people trying to do phone scams with health insurance and Medicare and all that kind of stuff. So I think, you know, as you become adult, adult children of older parents, you need to take a more proactive role in their own, their cyber protection. But part of that is becoming cyber smart yourself. Not that I'm looking to pitch my other podcast, but hey, why not throw it in there? Yeah, or having the cyber <laughs> a cyber secure mindset. mindset. Yes, exactly. Yes. <laughs> you know, because listen, there's so much information out there. You can go to Google today. You can type in cybercrime prevention and what's going to pop up. Maybe uh, three million pieces of information in a tenth of a second. Mm -hmm. And where are you going to start? Who are you going to trust? Where are you going to go? And a majority of the information that people are providing out there when it comes to cybersecurity awareness is designed to do two things. One is to completely scare you which shuts people down. And the other one is to go out and to get you to buy a product or a service. We are listening to what you're doing, uh, being proactive, taking the steps, educating yourself, listening to this and be proactive. I want everyone here to take the information that you learned and what steps are you going to take to better protect yourself? Exactly. Sounds like Cyber Secure Mindset Podcast is another thing we're going to have to work on. So we'll look for that in the Absolutely. future. Scott, congratulations on your success. It's good to have a good success story. I appreciate you sharing it and you enjoy the rest of your President's Weekend. And Darren, you are looking so thin today that I am so jealous. That's all the mess. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> So again, I want to thank Scott Angenbaum for joining me on the podcast. Again, what his story shows is that the better relationship you can have with your local FBI, 
the better off you will be in the event you need to contact someone. Every FBI office across the country has what's called a private sector coordinator who works with the private sector to do presentations on a variety of different topics. It may be cyber topics. It may be counterintelligence topics. It may be uh, active shooter type of information. It could be white collar crime related protective information. Contact your local FBI. If you don't know who how to do it, just go to FBI.gov. Uh, and they will tell you in the area you are who you should contact. If you know, you're not sure how to do that, email me directly, Darren at thecyberguy.com. I'll be happy to tell you where you live, who you should contact. And all of the presentations that they do are free of charge. They're not going to charge you anything. And it's good for the FBI because if they have threat information about someone targeting a con- company, then they can um, provide that they, they have it's quicker for them to then contact you as the potential victim if they already know who you are. And that is really our protective scheme of the week. When I talk about the, you know, in, in Cyber Guy 2.0, this is the fourth part of the episode, the things to do to protect yourself. And that's what it is. Learn who your local FBI points of contact are. Know, know them, you know, get to know them, um, have them come do presentations to your company, to your local civic group. Um, when I did this for the Birmingham division of uh, the FBI, I did, I did hundreds of different outreach presentations to anybody who would ask. If someone asked, hey, can you come do a presentation? I said yes. I would be happy to go do that presentation because it helped me to meet other people and put a face to the FBI. And so that in two ways it was effective, again, if you needed to contact the FBI, you now know who to contact. Or if I needed to contact a certain company, I knew people within hundreds of different companies locally that I could reach out to very quickly to get information that I may need to provide to them or, you know, get answers to questions that we may have. So know who your local FBI folks are. It can do nothing more than, than help you down the road. Because the one thing you don't want to do is, as the example in the, in the case Scott talked about, if the lawyer, if the, if the nonprofit didn't have a lawyer friend who knew Scott, they'd have lost their money. There, there's no way they would have gotten their money back. As we mentioned, it would have taken so long for them to find out who took it. It would have been long gone. So finally, our case of the week. Let's finish up our discussion with Russia with a case from that came to fruition as far as the bad guy getting sentenced in 2017. Now, I've mentioned before, and I think Scott and I mentioned that, you know, a lot of times... Um, if you have a, if your money is stolen by a hacker in Russia, no one's going to get arrested. You're not going to get your money back. And that is certainly problematic. But this is an example where good things did happen. Bad things happen to bad people in this particular case. So this is, I'm reading from a Department of Justice release regarding the sentencing of a Russian hacker to 27 years in prison for hacking and credit card fraud. So a 32-year-old Vladivostok Russian man was sentenced to 27 years in prison for his computing computer hacking crimes that caused more than $169 million in damage to small business and financial institutions. This was um, in the Western District of Washington. So this happened in the Seattle area. Roman Valeriches Seleznev, I certainly mispronounced that name, also known as Track 2, was convicted in August of 2016 of 38 counts related to his scheme to hack into point-of-sale computers to steal credit card numbers and sell them on dark websites. So basically, let me just kind of scroll down here and talk about the case itself somewhat. So um, he was, 
So according to evidence presented at trial, between October 2009 and October 2013, so four-year period, Selesneth hacked into retail point-of-sale systems and installed malicious software that allowed him to steal millions of credit card numbers from more than 500 U.S. businesses and send that data to servers that he controlled in Russia, the Ukraine, and McLean, Virginia. Selesnev then bundled the credit card information into groups called bases and sold the information on various criminal carding websites to buyers who used them for fraudulent purposes, according to evidence introduced during the trial. Many of the businesses were small businesses, including restaurants, pizza parlors in western Washington, including Broadway Grill in Seattle, which was forced into bankruptcy following the cyber assault. Testimony at trial revealed that Selesnev's scheme caused approximately 3,700, or um, it affected 3,700 financial institutions and more than $169 million in losses. Now, fortunately for the victims here, well, not so much fortunately, but fortunately for the case, Selesnev liked to use his money to travel. So he traveled to the Maldives and was arrested in 2014, laptop taken into custody, and the laptop itself contained 1.7 million stolen credit card numbers, including some from businesses in Western Washington. So this case was run by the Seattle field office of the FBI, as well as the, well, I take that back. It wasn't even an FBI case. It was a secret service case. So I apologize. So thumbs up to our secret service brethren who um, did this particular work in the Seattle area. So again, I'm giving credit to the secret service, not the FBI in this case, but it's good when, when, when these kind of things happen and bad guys end up getting arrested. But several things this case shows is that you think that a lot of the victims are target home Depot Lowe's have all been victims in the past. But they're able to recover from those losses. Um, banking institutions that have this kind of loss are able to recover from those losses. It's the small businesses that cannot recover, which is why if you are a small business owner, let me go back to the previous section of the podcast. If you're a small business owner, know who the FBI is. So if you have a problem, they you have someone to contact, but also so they can... Uh, advise you to certain threats that may target your business and it helps you stay protected because you know this podcast my cyber smart podcast is all designed to help people who aren't necessarily spending all of their time all day looking at cyber cases and thinking about cyber problems hear about these instances in a very down-to-earth, easy-to-understand methodology so you can protect yourself. My whole goal with any podcast I do is to prevent people from becoming another victim. So hope, fortunately, in this case, the Secret Service were able to um, get uh, Seleznev um, arrested. Uh, he was then serve, He will then serve 27 years in prison. And in federal prison, you serve all the time. You don't get, um, you do not get uh, parole in the federal federal system. And apparently, Selesnev was also charged in a separate indictment in Nevada for participating in racketeer influence corruption organization, or RICO charge, kind of to do the same thing. It has to do with the same stuff he was doing. Um, but he was also charged in Nevada and Georgia for the same kind of stuff. So, so Mr. Selesnev will probably not see the outside of a prison wall for quite some time. So a thumbs up to our law enforcement friends at the Secret Service, to the Department of Justice, Computer Crime and Intellectual Property Section, who prosecuted the case and a thumbs up to everyone involved there. So I want to thank you for taking the time again to listen to the Cyber Guy podcast. I want to thank my friend and guest, Scott Angenbaum, for jumping on to share his story of success from the Nashville division. As you go through your week, know that knowledge is protection. If you understand the threats that are targeting you, you can assess your risk and proceed wisely online. Give my other podcast, the Get Cyber Smart podcast, a listen if you have some time and... 
spread the word. Tell your friends. You can find my podcast on all of your favorite podcast distribution sites, Spotify, Google Play, Apple, so on and so forth. If you like what you hear, feel free to give a review. If you have questions or thoughts on the co- on the podcast, email me, Darren at thecyberguy.com, cyber spelled C-Y-B-U-R. Thanks again for listening. Enjoy your weekend. We'll talk to you soon. Mm-hmm.